You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. It's good to have you here today. I'm glad that you're here. If you will, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, as we continue to walk through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, while you're finding your place, just a reminder, uh, we will be having a membership meeting tonight uh, to put before our church body the opportunity to uh, call Pastor Jonathan as our worship pastor, so I hope that you'll be here tonight for that. Also, um, something I I found out between the services, um, and I know this young man was connected to many in our church family, but Josh Courier passed away, and... uh, he was very much involved in this church for years in a lot of different ways, and so we're going to pray for glory in the family here in just a moment. Before we do, Genesis chapter 3, let's pick it up in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? Father, we pause this morning, and we just say thank you for what you have done. For you have done more for us than we have ever deserved. And Father, you have made promises to us, every one which you will keep. And Lord, when you were here upon the earth, you said that you were going to go away and that you were going to prepare a place for us that where you are, we may be also. A friend and brother in Christ has made that journey from this life to your presence. We thank you for his testimony. We thank you for his life. We pray for his wife and his kids. Father, the pain that they're experiencing this morning well, Father, it's deep. But Father, I also know that your grace is sufficient and the promises that you have made, you will keep. So Father, we thank you for grace that found us. We thank you that the blood that you shed is enough to forgive us and set us free. We thank you for your word that is perfect and pure and we pray that you would guide us in it this morning. Father, I ask that for the time that we're together today, that we would set aside any excuses, that we would set aside for this time that we're together the distractions of life. The Father, the cell phone buzzing in our pocket or pocketbook won't distract us this morning. That our schedule and what we've got to do this week will not distract us because, Lord, you have something to say to us this morning. And I pray, Father, that we are listening So, Father, we pray that you would speak and speak loudly. For your people are listening. We love you. We thank you. We exalt you. Thank you for the love that you've poured in our life. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. There was a theologian, Christian philosopher by the name of G.K. Chesterton, born in London, um, late 1800s. You may have come across maybe a quote or maybe a commentary or a devotional. He wrote somewhere, I think it was over 100 books that he wrote. And one of his things, one of the things that he did or was good at, he was an apologist, which basically meant he spent his time studying God's Word for the sole purpose of defending it, for the hope that he could see others come to faith in Christ. 
He died in 1936, so during that time frame in which he lived, he saw a lot of turmoil in the world. He saw a lot of, of things that were quite frankly hard to explain, World War I in particular, the atrocities, the, the death, the, the fighting that he saw come to an end. And then not only that, just the, all the other things that was going on in the world he saw at that time. And because he had become kind of well-known, a news reporter wanted to interview him. And the news reporter posed a question to G.K. Chesterton that, quite frankly, everybody in this room, if we're, if we're honest, you've wrestled with this question. And it's often this question where I, I find the most opportunity to talk with people who are far from Jesus, people who've, who've never been to church, people who, who have never put faith in Christ. When I'm sharing the gospel with people, this is often the place where I end up starting. Because it's something that we can agree on almost immediately, and it's this. The question is, what is wrong with the world? There is something terribly, horrifically wrong. One of the downsides of being connected all the time through our technology is we are constantly inundated with bad news all the time. And so, so when we open up our browser and we pull up our news page or, or we're looking at a blog or we're listening to a podcast, over and over and over again, we are inundated with the fact that there is something wrong with this world, the life in which we live. Not a single person in this room or watching online this morning has been able to avoid this problem. It has, it has come into your marriage. It has come into your home. It could be a thousand different ways, but there is no doubt there's something wrong. So G.K. Chester was asking this question by this news reporter because he had the same question. He says, he asked Chesterton, he said, what is wrong with the world? Now, Chesterton at that time could have said a lot of things just like we could. And I've gotten a lot of answers to this question. One is, well, the politics. And certainly in his day, in London and what was going on in the world, politics was on the front page of every newspaper of what was going on. The, the World War I was over, or at least the latter part of his life. And then there's this new uprising within Germany that's going to lead us into World War II. Uh, so he could have certainly said, we got a problem with our politics. we got, we got a problem with our parliament. In our language, you say, well, it's, it's, the, it's the Democrats. They're the problem. Oh, no, it's the Republicans. It's, it's their problem. Oh, it's those independents, and them need to make a choice. It's, it's their fault. So the idea would be that the problems in our world come down to a political movement. Or Chester Kennedy said, well, you know, if we just had more equally distributed income, so that, that that upper percentage of people who are the, the billionaires and the millionaires, if we could just take money from them and, and give it to more people, then, then all the problems will go away. If we could just, just make sure everybody has the same food, the same amount of food, access to food, education, then, then all of our problems will go away. He, he could have said, well, you know, we, we really need one good world leader who could just step forward and lead. There's all kinds of ways that Chesterton could have asked, answered this question, and there's all kinds of ways you can answer the question, but I want you to hear how he answered it. He answered it with two words. So when he was asked, what is the problem in the world? G.K. Chesterton said, I am the problem. For this sermon this morning, I, I could have easily went down the path of talking about the Holocaust and the evils of that. And how that points us to the fall that we're going to talk about today. Certainly that would have worked. I could have, I could have talked about any culture, subculture group in our community that has chosen to ignore God's design. I, I, could have, I could go down that path. But what happens when we often think about sin and we often think about the fall, what we tend to do, and I've done it as well, is we point to those people out there and go, man, that's evidence of the fall. But what Chesterton does is he says, no, 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 it's not out there. It's a whole lot closer to home. As a matter of fact, there's a problem in my heart, and there's a problem in your heart. And while pointing to what's happening in the culture gives us the ability to maybe sidestep the real issue, Chesterton wasn't willing to sidestep the issue. The issue is within us. Paul, writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 7. You don't have to turn over there. But Paul reveals 
this same struggle inside of him. Greatest missionary to ever live, planted some 22 churches, traveled thousands of miles, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. If there's anybody in our Christian culture and history that we could put on a pedestal, it would be Paul, right? But Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 15 and following, this is just me paraphrasing it, but Paul says, the things that I ought to do that I know are right, I don't find myself doing those things. The things that I know to be wrong, those are the things that I find myself doing. And he, and he goes through this, and in your English translations, it can kind of bend you into a pretzel when you read it, but he goes back and forth talking about the things he ought to know that he, ought, that he should be doing, those things he don't do, and the things that he ought to be doing he, don't, he doesn't do. And so he gets to the end of that, and he says, oh, what a wretched man that I am. And I'm here to confess to you this morning that even though I have the privilege of shepherding this church, I want you to know that I want you to hear this clearly. I can be a horrible human being. I don't deserve a pedestal. I really don't deserve to be your pastor. Because the thoughts that run through my head sometimes, the things that come out of my mouth sometimes, I'm like, Paul, I'm like, where in the world did that come from? The things that I know I ought to be doing, I don't always do. So there's not a lot of difference between me and you. And the fact is, I fail often. The fact is, I have to go back to my Creator. I have to go back to Christ. And I have to confess that and own that. And he is faithful and just to forgive me and clean me up every single time without fail because it's one of the promises he made to me that when I, when I run back to him as an abject failure, he cleans me up and forgives me. So this morning, what, I, what we've got to focus on, for folks, is the problem is not out there. No, 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 no. The problem is in here. And it starts right here. In Genesis chapter 3, you see God made this perfect garden. He pl placed his pinnacle of creation there, and everything that had been created up to that point was to sustain life. That God not only called it into existence, but he gave it order and function. And he, and he placed his Imago Dei bearers, the image bearers, in that garden. And he says, now you tend this garden, you, you provide dominion over it, there's that part last week, I think it's just a beautiful scene where Adam is, God has brought the animals together and, and, and God has given Adam the responsibility to name the animals, right? To exert that dominion, to begin doing what God had called him to do. And it has this imagery of God just kind of sitting off to the side. I would imagine that God was smiling because his, his Imago Dei bearer is doing exactly what he's called him to do. And, and here's God walking in the garden with him. And I gave you the illustration of God walking arm in arm with the prize creation. And he's going, you see the sunset? I made that just for you. See those stars out there? I made that just so you can look out there and be reminded of me. You see that flower there? That flower, I made that for you. Look, look at all the trees. Look at all the fruit, all the provision. I have given you everything that you need. And not only that, I have given you myself. The creator walking with his creation. That's incredible. God said, there's one tree. And all of this, and in all of the cosmos, there's one command, only one. See the tree in the middle of the garden over there, the, the knowledge of good and evil? Just don't, don't eat from that tree. Life was great. Paradise found. But the reality is, it was paradise lost. And we've got to take a look at why it was lost. So let's take a look at this opening statement here, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that God had made. Now, we've got to wrestle with this right off the bat. So we have Adam and Eve, pinnacle of God's creation in the garden, perfect environment. We have the animals that's been created and, and called into existence by God. But there's someone else in the garden you need to know about. And he wasn't there from the beginning. I don't know how much time elapsed between when this being showed up and the fall. I don't think it was a lot of time went by. 
But there's a whole story behind this serpent that we need to kind of unpack. And, and the reality is, is that in heaven, before this, before this moment, up in heaven, there's an angel that God had created because all the angels were a creation of God. But there's this one angel, and, and he decides that, that God is not worthy of the throne that he's sitting upon so that this angel decides he's going to get a little coup together. So he gets some angels and they all kind of bind together and they decide, now get this, they decide that they're going to overthrow the creator of the universe. How arrogant. How incredibly prideful. Well, you know how it went. The Bible tells us, both in Isaiah, Ezekiel, that Satan, this angel, was cast down to earth along with the other angels who are now what we understand to be demons are cast down to the earth. And I don't think it took very long. I don't know when it happened because the Bible doesn't tell us. Apparently, it's not for us to know. It's not important. But nonetheless, I don't think a whole lot of time went by for when Satan was cast down to this earth that he began to put his crosshairs on the pinnacle of God's creation. Because remember, he hates God with a passion. So, being cast out of heaven, what's his option? His option now, his play now, is to go after the Imago Dei bearers, the ones who have been set apart by God, given intellect and ability to worship Him, to worship Him in honor and truth. It shouldn't surprise us that Satan sets his crosshairs on God's prized creation. Now, this serpent. You know, we've had all kinds of imageries all through our childhood. If you're, if you're new to the church, maybe, maybe this is not something you've seen, but for those who have been in the church a while, you've seen the pictures in Vacation Bible School of the, the snake around the tree, and, you know, there's fruit there. Maybe it's usually pictured as an apple or something. I don't know. And you get all this imagery. And sometimes that imagery can sometimes creep into our interpretation of the text in front of us. So what we have here is a serpent, but that serpent is being empowered by Satan himself. And what is even more strange is this serpent has the ability to talk. And even more strange is when we get down further in the text, I'll point this out later, but it is possible because some theologians kind of go this direction that to make sense of the judgment that God pours out is it is possible that the snake might have actually had legs and was walking. Okay, we'll come back to that. I don't think that's really all that important. But what is important is what comes out of the mouth of this serpent that is empowered by Satan. He says to the woman, did God actually say? Now, let me pause here for just a moment. If you think for a moment that Satan is some kind of like dude with a red pitchfork and tail and horns and he's down in hell shoveling coal into a furnace somewhere like you learned in cartoons as a kid in my generation, let me, let me just blow that up for you. Satan is not down in hell stirring the fires of the flames of hell. He is walking about the earth seeking whom he may devour. And guess how he does it? He doesn't just walk up and just start laying down all this stuff about how you shouldn't believe in God. No, what he does is he walks up and he begins to place a question in your heart. It could be any kind of question. It could be, well, you know, my job just isn't what it needs to be. I need more money. It could be all kinds of things. It could flow out of greed or lust. But it often does start exactly where he starts, right here in the garden. Did God actually say now, notice what he does next. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, I wrestled with that question this week. Because just on the face of that question, it's preponderous. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of insane. So, so God creates this entire garden. There's fruit hanging all through this garden on all the trees. It would be rather, well, insane for God to create all of this fruit to be able to sustain human life and then yet look at Adam and Eve and say, you can't eat from any of it. So why does Satan ask this question the way that he does? I think there's three reasons that he asks it the way that he does. First of all, I think he wants to get Eve to reply. He wants Eve to reply. He wants a conversation to begin. Your temptations, what you are struggling with, often begins with a conversation you are having with yourself. Something comes up in your life. It's appealing. It appeals to your flesh. We begin to have a conversation that goes much like this. Did God really say I can't do that? I think the second reason that Satan poses this particular question is he is already going to begin to present God as being overly restrictive. In other words, 
when Satan poses the question, you can't eat from any tree, he's kind of posing the idea already that this God who's coming and walking with you, he's just not fair. He's requiring things of you that you shouldn't have to be required to do. The third reason I think he says this question or asks this question the way that he does is he's going to go ahead and begin to place doubt about God's goodness. Is God really good? That is exactly what you're wrestling with today. That is exactly what you're wrestling with. And in those moments of temptation, what you're doing is you're deciding that whatever appeals to your flesh is better than God. You may not frame it that way. You may not even think about it that way. But that's exactly what is happening. So let's read on. He says, so she says in response, verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now there's something very important you need to know about what's happening here. So when the serpent comes up and begins to talk with Eve, the question I often get from kids and even adults is, why does Eve freak out about that? Right? I mean, why, why is it, whoa, you know, a serpent talking to me in the garden? Well, first of all, the world is not cursed yet. Also, also these, these two human beings that God has created, they're still very much new to the creation. So it was not anything in her experience that said that, that this was a problem. But here's the other part. You know, when Satan comes, when his forces of darkness come, they don't always, they don't, they're not going to come as like a, like a demonic force. They're going to come as something good, something that you can have a conversation with, something that's no big deal incognito. That's exactly how he operates. But I want you to notice this. He says, she says, in response to him, well, God said we could eat of all these trees. Now, notice that she leaves some things out. She leaves some things out. God said you can freely eat or you can surely eat from all the trees in the garden. In other words, God focuses on his grace and his mercy and his generosity. Here is all these trees. I don't know how many there were, but there were lots of them. There's only one you can't eat from, only one command, only one law. But notice how Satan turns that around and says, did God say you couldn't eat from any tree? Well, no, he didn't say that. But he did say that we can eat from all the trees except for this one. And notice how she also adds that we can't touch it. Now, one other important facet you need to to get here. You have the serpent. You have Eve. Where's old Adam at? You ever thought about that? Where's Adam? Is he off tending the garden somewhere? No. If you go back to verse 1 where Satan immediately says, did God say to you, you see that you there, you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? Here's something interesting about the Hebrew language. It's plural. So even though we see it in English referring to a single individual, when it's used in the Hebrew language, it is plural. So get this. Satan is talking to more than one person in the garden. Well, who could that be? There's only one other possibility here. Adam is right there. He's not off tending a garden somewhere. He's not off, you know, doing his own thing. He's right there. He's watching this all go down. He's not stepping forward. He's not exerting leadership. And by the way, God is the one. God spoke to Adam first. So this is the command. And Eve said back to Satan, well, yeah, we can't eat from this particular tree. Now notice the serpent's reply. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You don't have to worry about the circumstances of choosing to disobey God. Does that sound familiar? Sure it does. Because I can point to every place where I've disobeyed God, and that's exactly what was going on in my head at that moment. You don't have to worry about the circumstances. Just indulge your flesh. This is good for you. This is something you need to enjoy. But notice what he says. He he directly contradicts what God has said, but then he goes further. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Hmm. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Well, in an area of temptation, there doesn't need to be anything new because this still works very well. What Satan does is he says to Eve, Eve, God can't be trusted because he's keeping something from you that you deserve. That he's not good at all. 
Because if, if he was good, he would give you everything that you, that you desire, especially the fruit hanging on that tree. If God was really good, then he would give you free access to everything. You wouldn't have to worry about death or punishment. No, if God was good, then he wouldn't restrict you from this one thing. Now, get this. Satan focuses their attention on the one thing. Even though they have the entire garden, it's the one tree with the one fruit that God said they couldn't have. And that is the focus. He says to Adam and Eve, God is not trustworthy. You should be autonomous. You should live your life for you. Why do you want to live under these restrictions? Shouldn't you be completely free? Shouldn't you be able to do as you please? Who is this God who comes down and says that you can't eat from a tree? Why don't you take, take control of your own life? And why don't you just go do what you want to do and live for you? Does, that sound, does any of this sound familiar? It should. Because this is exactly what the forces of darkness are doing in your head every week. Presenting something to you that is bad for you. Presenting something to you that destroys you from the inside out. It may be something that you're able to hide. It may be something that, that no one else knows about. And you've been, you've been believing the lie that it's not hurting anyone else. And you may be thinking, well, God didn't really speak to this exactly. And here's the scary part. This is what really should make the hair stand up on the back of our neck is that we can continue to go through the motions of church and religion Without fail, we can raise our hands, we can sing loud, we can, we can go to a small group. All the while, the outward looks very good and in place while the inward man or woman is absolutely broken. Now, that should make all of us pause. It should make all of us question whether we're playing a game. Satan says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Look at this, you will be like God. Oh, my goodness, does that not appeal to today's culture? You can be God. You can be in control. You get to determine what is true and what is not. You get to empower your own life. This whole self-empowerment, autonomous idea that, that we live separate from everyone else and the choices that I make has no impact on anyone else. And the fact is that in this garden at this moment, there is a great lie that is being told and it's predicated on the idea that God cannot be trusted. He's keeping something from you that you deserve. Notice what happens. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. You see, now she's looking at the tree a whole different way than she's looked at it before. Now she sees and determines in her own heart, in her own mind, that it's no big deal. And she also has now determined that God is not worthy of her allegiance. She is also, her and Adam both have now decided that what is on that tree is better than God himself. That the time that they have spent with God fellowshipping and communing together in love and unity, now all that matters is the fruit that she can't have. And now it's about self-empowerment. And in this moment, nothing matters but getting what she and Adam desire. Notice, notice she saw that the tree was good for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. In other words, she knew that if she could partake of this, she could be in control of her life and so could Adam. Well, we know where the story goes. She takes of the fruit, she eats of it, and she gives it to Adam. Now, imagine for a moment that this story is being written today. Let's, let's imagine that our culture is going to write this story. Maybe rewrite it. Maybe, maybe do a little play or production based off of this, but do it from a secular worldview. This moment in Eve's life, get this, in our culture today would be celebrated. Here's a woman who was being kept down by God who didn't care anything about her. But this woman took control of her destiny. She cast off the religious restrictions from an old world religion. She cast off the old ideas of God who is in control. And she embraced life to the fullest to live as she wants to live. Do you see how that could be 
easily put forth today, that woman empowerment, man empowering himself, casting off restrictions, because the idea is, is that freedom, true feet or freedom, is no restrictions at all, doing what you get to do and what you want to do. But Satan has a way of, well, lying. The Bible says he's the father of lies. So we would imagine that what's happened in this, well, this deadly conversation is that Satan hasn't told the full truth. Now, he's told some truth, right? You eat of it, you're going you're gonna to gain some knowledge. That, that God has knowledge. He's keeping it from you. You deserve to have it. They're going to gain some knowledge, but it's not all what they think. You see, they're only seeing the benefits, and Satan always hides the downside. Have you ever noticed how that when you engage in the temptation, how that almost immediately, I'm talking without fail, immediately, there is this guilt and this shame? Have you ever noticed that as soon as we disobey God, we know we have? That right before that disobedience, we weren't thinking about God. If we were, we'd put him aside. We, we weren't thinking about the effects of, of engagements, but, but what's amazing is as soon as we do it, as soon as we're caught in the shame and the guilt of, of the act, immediately, where does our mind go as Christ's followers? To God, almost immediately. And the shame and the guilt come with it. Verse 8, I'm sorry, verse, uh, let's break up to verse uh, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, what's going to happen next is Adam and Eve, because God has created them with the ability to reason and think. Here, here's what they're going to think. They're going to say, okay, we need to hide our shame and our guilt. We need to cover it up. And there's three ways that Adam and Eve try to cover this up. Now, I hope it's in this moment, if you've not found any connection with Adam and Eve, you're forbearing, great, 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 whatever, it's at this point you're going to find quite a bit of connection because I did this week. So God comes down to walk in the cool of the day. The cool of the day means in the afternoon when the breeze is stirring through the garden. And for some time past, when God would walk in the garden, guess who walked with him? Adam and Eve, arm in arm, hand in hand, no separation, a beautiful moment of love and grace. But on this day, notice what happens. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord, or sound of God walking into the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord. So the first way that Adam and Eve try to cover their guilt is by sewing some fig leaves together. They look at each other for the first time ever. Guess what? They eat the fruit. Now they have knowledge. You know what the first thing they realize in that knowledge? They're naked. And now they're ashamed. Something they've never had before. They're ashamed of one another. They're looking at each other's body and going, okay, you need to cover up. I need to cover up. And they, they split. They start trying to get some leaves to cover up. So they're trying to cover up that shame and that guilt and that sin because they've never experienced that before. So the only thing they know to do is to cover up. I think this begs a question. What are you trying to cover your sin with? We all do it. I've done it. One way we try to sew some fig leaves together is we try to explain away that what we know to be exactly true, that what we're doing is wrong. We try to, try to justify it. So that's sewing one, leaf, one fig leaf together. Another fig leaf that we try to sew together is the idea that, that it's no big deal that everybody's doing it. That's one fig leaf. Look, if everybody's doing it and God's not judging them, so how could this be wrong? That's another fig leaf we, we sew on. Maybe, maybe I'm just going to immerse myself in my work. Or, or maybe I'm just going to continue to pursue money because money will be able to cover my shame. I can buy whatever I want. Therefore, it takes my mind off of my shame and my guilt. Maybe, maybe I'm just going to take these pills, these pills that were prescribed for the accident that I had years ago to control the pain. And I remember that when I took them, it made me forget things. So maybe, maybe I could sew one fig leaf on by, by taking this medication that I don't need for pain, but to help me forget 
my troubles and move on with my life. Or maybe, maybe it's in that 12-pack you're going to buy on the way home from church. I don't know if you heard this story this week. It blew my mind. Max Licato. Max Licato. A guy who's written, I don't know, hundreds of books, mega church, huge staff. I mean, and this guy's done incredibly, incredibly powerful work in the kingdom of God. Over the last few weeks, he said that in the pinnacle of that ministry, his church ministry in life, when everything was going great and everybody was wanting to emulate him and his ministry, he said, what you didn't know, what you didn't see is behind the scenes in the church, the staff were at each other's throats all the time. He said it was constant discord. He said, but the other thing you didn't see is when I got in my car and drove all the way out of town to that little convenience store out on the side of the interstate, and I would go into that convenience store, and I would buy a case of beer, and I would sit in my car, and I would drink away my troubles. Max Licato? You see, we all have a propensity. We all have an ability to do horrible things. He said he would sit out in the car, and he would drink can after can after can while at the same time talking with people and planning ministry. I don't say that to throw him under the bus because that's a powerful testimony that he's now sharing. Sewing fig leaves together, what is your fig leaf that you run to? To cover. The second way that that they cover or try to cover is they hide from God. So not only do they put some leaves on, but they, they run into the forest and they're hiding from God. Now, this, this is ludicrous. Just as ludicrous as some fig leaves were going to be able to cover their shame, equally ludicrous is that they're going to somehow hide this from God, the creator, the omnipotent, omniscient creator. He knew the whole time what's going on. He knew what was going on. He knew what's going on in the heart of Adam. Notice what he says. It says, it says and they heard the sound of the Lord walking. It's verse 8. In the cool of the day, and the man of hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord God called to Adam. Notice this. He calls to Adam. And this is the question. Adam, where are you? Now, God's not wanting to know what tree are you hiding behind because God knows where he is. God can see him. So here's, here's Adam. If you could picture this, Adam's hiding over behind a bush because he's ashamed and, and now instead of running to God and embracing God, as they had done in the past, now their instinct is to run away from him because they're embarrassed and ashamed that they've broken the only command that they've had. I would imagine that running through the mind of Adam and Eve is thinking, my goodness, what have we done? We had everything we could need in this garden, but it was that one tree that got our attention. Where are you, Adam? I would ask you the question, where are you? That's not a question of where you're located. Where are you spiritually? Are you running from God? Are you trying to hide from him? Are are you thinking that what you have done is so awful, the thing you're thinking in your head, the thing you're watching online, the thing you've done to your wife or your husband, the thing you've done to your kids, the thing you've done on the job, the things you've done are so bad that it's taken you far beyond what God could ever forgive So you're running and you're hiding and you're running and you're hiding and you've been running and hiding for a long time and depression is part of your daily existence. Anxiety is eating you up from the inside. It's like a cancer on the inside because you know that you have rebelled against your creator and instead of running to him and finding grace and love, you can just keep running and running and running. How's that working for you? It's just another way to try to hide or to cover And he says to Adam, Adam, where are you? Why is God posing this question? Why is he asking Adam, Adam, what have you done? Why is he asking that? It's not because God is unaware. It's not like God's looking at this going, what happened here? No, he knows. But he wants Adam to own it. He wants you to stop running and to own it. What does it mean to own it? To agree with God that what you're doing is rebellion to not try to cover it up with leaves, to not run and hide from him, but to run to him and to confess. He already knows anyway. God already knew in the garden what was going on. So he says, where are you, Adam? Did, did, did you eat of the tree? Now, the third way that they try to cover this 
I think hits us right where we are today in our culture. Matter of fact, I think this one may resonate with, I know it resonated with me, but I think it's going to resonate with you as well. Verse 10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. That's brand new, by the way. He's afraid because I was naked. He was ashamed and he hid himself. Verse 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? God already knows the answers. But is Adam willing to own it? Is Adam in this moment willing to confess what he's done, own it, and simply say to God, yes, yes, we, we ate of the fruit. God, I know that I was responsible as the man of the house to, to, to inform Eve. I was there in the garden. I, I should have I done something. I should have said something. I didn't. And God, I'm sorry. Notice what Adam does. This is the third way we try to cover. He said, verse 12, the woman whom you gave with me, the woman. Now, what does Adam do here? Adam blames Eve but he also blames God himself. Well, if you had given me this woman, if you, if you had took that rib from my side and gave someone to me like me, then this would have never happened. So God, it's your fault, and it's certainly Eve's fault. But notice those last two words of what he says. Notice this. Notice what he says. I ate. Folks, here's the third way we cover. We cover by being a perpetual victim of someone else's choices. We live in a culture of victimhood so that if I can blame my parents, if I can blame my coworker, if I can blame my kids, if I can blame the culture, if I can blame those people out there who are living ungodly, if I can continually blame someone else and make myself a victim, then I never really have to own any of it. Oh, it was her fault. Oh, no, it's his fault. Oh, if I just had enough money, I wouldn't be living like this. And so we live in this perpetual victimhood, which then, in our minds, exonerates us from ever having to own anything for our choices. And see, I think it's here that we can come to church. Man, we can put on the mask. What I love about Celebrate Recovery, what I've always loved about Celebrate Recovery, that ministry that we do on Monday, what Monday nights, what I, what I love about that ministry is in that place, I wish, I'm hoping that one day it's going to spread all across this church, but for now, in CR, you can be who you are, all the warts, all the brokenness, and they own it. <laughs> they own it. Are you owning it? Or are your fingers automatically going to somebody else's fault? It's not yours. God says to Adam, Adam, did you eat? Adam, who told you you were naked? Well, it was the woman. And by the way, it was you. It's your fault. It's her fault. And then at the last of that phrase, he finally says, well, I did eat. Well, listen, Adam, listen, church, you are responsible for the choices that you make. You are going to be held accountable for the choices that you make. You will not be able to stand before a holy God. You'll not be able to stand before Christ your King and say, well, the reason I didn't do this or I did that was because of that guy right over there. Jesus is not going to have any part of that. You are accountable. You're not a victim. Adam's not a victim. He made a choice. And so did Eve. Notice what Eve does. Eve says, well, it was the serpent. This is how we say it in our day. The devil made me do it. No, you chose. I chose. And until we get to a place where we're willing to admit that we chose to rebel against God, knowing fully well what he required of us, it's not until we get to that moment that we're ever going to be able to have our sins finally forgiven and cast free from us. We'll get to that in just a minute. So here we have Adam and Eve playing the victim card, sewing up some fig leaves, uh, running from God, hiding. But ultimately, verse 14, we're going to have paradise lost here. And they know it. They already know it. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. What is going on here? What's happening here? So, again, this is where some theologians think that snakes, the snake, the serpent, might have been actually walking upright. 
because the curse that he receives is to be now on his belly for the rest of his existence, to lower him down. The pride and the arrogance is now going to be lowered. That which exalts himself will be lowered. And in this moment, the serpent is going to be cursed to the ground to eat dust and crawl among the ground. That's the punishment. Notice the consequences. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So here we have what's called the proto-evangelum. It's a fancy word that says right here in this moment of the fall, we have an arrow pointing us directly to Jesus. Because there will be an offspring who will come, not only from Adam and Eve, but he'll also come from Abraham. He'll come from the tribe of Judah. He'll come from the line of David. And eventually, given enough time, this son of Eve will lay down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And in doing so, he will crush the head of Satan who is in this garden once and for all. Now, Satan will bruise his heel. He will, he will inflict some pain upon this son, but ultimately the son will be victorious. To the woman, he says this, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So on the one hand, God says to the, to the family, the first family, go multiply, have children. That's the command, go have children. But then in the, in the fall, God says in doing so, there's going to be great pain great travail in being able to fulfill what God has blessed them to do. So that's the punishment, but notice also the consequences. Some of the consequences is going to be basically trouble and division within the home. He says here, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So what, had, what we had in this paradise is what we had as a husband and wife doing life together without any separation, with no, no desire to be exerting oneself over the other person. Harmony, unity, beauty. After the fall, what do we have? We have the wife wanting to usurp the role of the husband in his leadership. We have the husband in responding in like manner by trying to be a dictator. And now we have all kinds of strife within the marriage. And that's part of this life now. In Christ, amazingly, in Christ, in the New Testament church, In Ephesians 5, we see the answer to that struggle. Two people being faithful followers of Jesus, uniting in marriage, and understanding that both are submitting to one another, that there's roles that the husband plays, there's roles that the wife plays, but together under Christ, submitted to him and to one another, then we can get back to some semblance of what paradise looks like. But on our best day, there's still that strife that we have to work through. Notice what he says to the husband or to Adam. He says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. Now, before the fall, Adam was tending the garden. He was working. So work is not a result of the fall. What is a result of the fall is just how hard that work is going to be moving forward. It's going to be far more difficult. It's almost like the, the, the from an agricultural standpoint, it's almost like the, the earth is working against Adam, and it was. But if we move out of the agriculture, it doesn't matter if you're an accountant or a school teacher, you are constantly confronted with the pain and trouble of being an employee, the pain and trouble of trying to earn a living, the pain and trouble of working for a boss, the pain and trouble of trying to, to do what you've been called to do in that realm, and yet be constantly pulled away to do something else. So that constant pain and struggle of, of work has its roots right here in Genesis 3. Now, if the story were to end at verse 19, it would be a sad story indeed. We have to admit that God would have been completely within his right to, after all this is confessed, that God snap his fingers, and Adam and Eve fall back into a pile of dust. That would have been well within his right. After all that I've given you, after all that I've blessed you with, in a single moment of time, you'll listen to a talking serpent and take his word as the truth over the relationship that we had, and you chose that over me. So yeah, you're gone. God doesn't do that. Notice what he does. Verse 20. Verse 20, he says, the man, in this moment, the man calls the wife named Eve because she's the mother of all living. But look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
You see, they were trying to cover their own shame. But see, there's no way you can do that. There's no way you can take away the shame yourself. There's no way you can take away the guilt yourself. There's, there's no amount of psychotherapy. There, there's no amount of, of drugs, prescription or otherwise, that's going to get you out from under the guilt you feel of violating a holy God and what he's commanded you to do. You can't cleanse yourself. Adam and Eve, the, the right thing to have happened to you, the right thing is that God required of Adam and Eve their very life and took them out right on the spot. But he didn't. Here in this text, we have God taking an animal. We don't know what, maybe two animals, and he slaughters them. The first animal sacrifice in the entire Bible is right here. And why did God do it? To provide a covering for their shame because they couldn't provide it for themselves. Now, this is an, another image of what Christ came to do on our behalf. Because Christ, when he died on that cross, when he resurrected from the dead, when he, when he shed his blood, a perfect blood, he did so, so that not that our sins would just be kind of covered, the idea of atonement, that word that we get in the Old Testament. But you see, what Christ's blood does is it doesn't just cover it, it removes it completely. Listen, if you're broken down with guilt and shame of your past, if, if, you're, if you're bearing up under a load of some choice you made and, and you're still running from God because you think that you've went too far, you think that, that whatever choice you've made is taking you beyond God's grace, I'm telling you and I'm promising you on the authority of God's Word, if you will come back to Him and you will own what you've done, what you will find with God is not a hammer that hits you between the eyes, but the blood of Christ that will wash you clean, remove your guilt, cast your sins as far as the east is from the west, and you can be free. I've experienced it. I know what it's like. I've experienced it over and over and over again because if you haven't figured this out, your pastor has some horrible tendencies in him because he's no different than you. God clothes them with garments of skin. A sacrifice led to a covering which enabled Adam and Eve to have some kind of existence with God, not fully restored because that's got to come later, but that they can move on from this moment. Would you, like, would you like to move on from that horrible choice you made? Would you like to finally move on? Well, it begins by admitting and owning the fact that you got it wrong. Not running, not hiding, not sowing fig leaves, owning it. Number two, not only owning it and admitting it, but, but, but being willing, being willing to trust God in his love and grace to forgive you of it. Because I think some of your reason you're running is you think, you don't think you can be forgiven of it. My goodness, God has forgiven me of some heinous things that I've done. And every time he's been faithful and just to forgive me, love me, and not cast me aside. So I ask you the question this morning, where are you? Not physically, where are you? Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde.